created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask questions of me and our guests by requesting us to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get back to everyone, but I do ask that everybody be respectful. Today's guest is Duran Young, Eternal Family Systems Therapist and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. She also practices psychedelic assisted therapy at Field Trip Health. And after many years of analyzing the epigenetic wounds of racism and anti-blackness, Duran's established Black Therapists Rock, a nonprofit organization that mobilizes over 30,000 mental health professionals committed to reducing the psychological toll of systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma. I do want to thank you so much for joining me. You know, you are one of my favorite people. And I want to touch on your experience with psychedelics, you know, as an internal family systems therapist and your nonprofit Black Therapist Rock. But I, I would like to kind of talk to you about how you started on this path and how it set you on this journey. Um, so I was just wondering if you would be willing to to share your story. Yeah, so I feel like I'm a story within lots of stories. <laughs> and, um, the start of my story, it starts with my mother, who was a teen mother, um, and my father, who was a high school dropout. Um, at the time, my mom was trying to get him to pass his GED, so she was tutoring him. And he had a girlfriend, um, but my mom was, uh, I guess I could say, you know, she was very inexperienced when it came to dating and boys. And somehow they ended up, you know, getting pregnant with me. And he told my mom, I had a girlfriend. And she told her mom, I have a baby. And so my grandmother and uh, actually paid for my mom to have an abortion. And I think that's an important part of my story because... Uh, my mother fought to keep me alive and for me to exist, even though she definitely did not feel prepared to be a mother. Mm. Um, and so in the state of Texas, which is where I'm from, you might hear that in my voice. <laughs> in the state of Texas, you uh, uh, all women have to complete a um, like an informed decision kind of process, you know, consent form. And, and uh, you have to go in and watch a video that tells you all the risks associated with having an abortion. And so my mom went to that appointment uh, that my grandmother had already paid for the procedure. And my mom watched the video and she said she couldn't do it. And so my grandmother actually kicked her out of the house. Um, my mom and my dad got an apartment together at 16 years old for about three months. Um, and that didn't last. But my when I was born, um, you know, I was born in August. And three months later, I was actually um, back in ICU had with pneumonia as a three-month-old infant because mm -hmm. my mother couldn't afford heat. And that, to me, is like the story that tells you a lot about how my life was going to be. Uh, with a single mother who, by the time she was 19, she had three children. 
and I was the oldest. And so she had a lot of mental health challenges that didn't get addressed. Um, and then, you know, turned to substances to medicate those mental health challenges and didn't have a lot of support socially, economically, just didn't have the resources she needed to raise a family of four. Um, and so I ended up being kind of like a second parent. And what we'll be talking about today, really, you know, experiencing complex trauma, experiencing a lot of adverse childhood experiences, experiencing um, poverty. Poverty, which leads to a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Um, my father also ended up in prison for most of my life, on and off, um, for the sale of drugs. And so that these are things, these are intersections that are, I'm really passionate about. People in poverty who don't have access to mental health, um, you know, people who happen to be black and, and live in environments where that they're told that that's wrong, uh, which is something that I experienced throughout my life and my mom experienced, my whole entire family has experienced um, so these are things that I talk and teach about because I lived them for many years. And when I turned 18, I joined the military and I got to really experience um, healthcare. <laughs> I worked in the military healthcare setting for 18 years and I got to understand how these systems work from the inside out. Um, and I had no idea until I joined the military really what healthcare was supposed to be about or who it was for because I didn't see myself reflected in those resources. And my mom, she never really, you know, she used them sparingly as much as, as, le as little as possible, should I say, mm -hmm. um, because she didn't trust the system. And so uh, my work, I started Black Therapist Rock in 2016 while I was in the military um, as a way to kind of organize therapists towards educating our community. I really felt like there are things that we know that are the, the average person um, you know, that comes to see us doesn't know. And if they never come to see us, they will continue to not know. So my goal was to kind of take this education, trauma education, mental health education, mental health awareness out to the communities to make it more accessible because I saw that it, it wasn't for my mom and her mom. And really for in my family, I'm really the only one who has been able to access healing and um, healthcare services in, a, in an effective manner. So yeah, that's a little bit about my story and how I got to where I am today. And you really focused on internal family systems therapy, which I'm a huge fan of. I think you know this. I'm I I you know I've been through traditional therapy um, my whole life, and it wasn't until I started internal family systems therapy where I actually began healing. And, and so I'm just curious for you, what introduced you to that? that that type of therapy? Well, I guess, again, it was my lived experiences and not being able to see myself reflected. I uh, got my first degree in social psychology in 2005, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I quickly realized that it, it was like a whole nother language to me because they had all these theories from these dead white guys, you know, <laughs> Um, and all of it was focused on what's happening in your mind and understanding your thoughts. But I didn't really understand my thoughts and where they came from. You know, the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy approach, is what I would say 80 to 90 percent th of therapists are trained in. It is mm -hmm. really, you know, emphasized as the main modality that if you can understand your thoughts, you can understand your behaviors, you can understand your emotions, then that is healing. And for a lot of people, we don't, we don't, if you've experienced so much trauma that you can't even remember, you know, what grade you were in or how old you were when things were happening, 
there was so much chaos and, and just, you know, life happening that you didn't know how you felt. And, and for good reason, you know, you try not to feel anything. That was right. a defense mechanism to, to be able to block thoughts off and to be able to block off emotions. So I had a lot of question marks around what am I feeling and what am I thinking? And I would blame myself for that. I would shame myself and blame myself for not knowing what is the thought behind this emotion or what is the emotion behind this thought. And I started to question that when I became a therapist myself because it wasn't working for most of the clients that I was serving either. You know, I was trying to teach them, oh, you just have to question your thoughts and where they came <laughs> from and, you know, the what thoughts are behind each behavior. And it wasn't as simple as that. So I actually switched over to something called cognitive processing tra- uh, therapy, which is a trauma-informed modality that most military therapists are trained in. We're trained in a lot of um, behavioral and cognitive approaches. Like I said, I was trained in exposure therapy, which I actually tried to use. Most of my clients uh, were women in the military and dealing with either domestic violence or sexual trauma. And they, the exposure therapy was frightening for me and them to have to have a woman who experiences sexual assault at a gym to ask her to go to the gym over and over again and sit with those emotions was really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just ethically, ethically, I couldn't, I could no longer do that. So the cognitive processing was about writing down, you know, everything you think about what happened and then going line by line to, to understand if that was a stuck point. Is that something that you're stuck around that has you stuck in life, that has you has a limiting belief around who you are, or what you deserve, and really dissecting the thoughts, which was okay for a while. You know, that got me a lot further than the other therapies that I was trained in. But I wasn't in, in, um, introduced to IFS or internal family systems until I was leaving the military and I had to have, I had been in therapy on and off since I was 21, but I needed a lot of intense therapy when I was leaving because the military was really the only thing I'd ever done with my adult life. Since I was 18 years old, I was really terrified of walking back out into the world without the resources that I had grown accustomed to. Hmm. And without anyone telling me what to think, what to do, where to go, what to wear. Uh, you know, as a child, I had that. And then as an adult, I had that. So at the age of 36, I really didn't feel like I understood how to do life. Um, and I started to have kind of, at the time I was having an early midlife crisis as well, you know, separating from the military, going through a divorce, just a lot of things happening in my life. So I needed a lot of support. And I went to a trauma day center program where we went, uh, you know, we went to therapy, pretty much group therapy every day for four hours. And we processed what I know now as our parts, our childhood traumas that shaped us into who we are today, as well as our environment our culture, and our family. And so, um, you know, I began to look at these things and they taught me what self-compassion was. I had no idea what that was either coming from the military. We didn't talk much about compassion. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked a lot about grit. You know, we talked a lot about accountability. We talked a lot about, you know, workplace performance, but we didn't really look at the whole person and how they're doing deep down inside. So this 10-month process that I went through in this trauma day center was life changing. And at the end of it, I asked what modality they were using because I had never experienced anything like that. And I wanted Mm -hmm. it for everyone that experienced something like me. And so I went to my therapist and I asked her, you know, what is this that you're using? Cause I'm a trauma therapist and I've never seen anything that gets to the root cause 
of trauma. And she said, it's IFS. And she wrote down some YouTube videos for me. I went and looked at the YouTube videos, found the founder and reached out to him. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how, that's the person I am, you know, in the military. It's like, if you want things done, you do it. You get it done. Um, So I reached out to the IFS Institute, which was, you know, uh, Dick's brother at the time. Dick Schwartz is the founder of IFS and John Mm -hmm. Schwartz was his brother and he was the CEO. And he was so excited that I had done that because they had been trying to uh, really prioritize diversity in their community and really didn't have a clue of how that how to do that, to be honest. Uh, so here I came with a network of 30,000 Black therapists and my passion for getting them all trained in IFS. And this was like a match made in heaven. Wow, that is amazing. You get things done. And I love it. <laughs> Um, I have parts that get things done. I call it my yeah. dream project part. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's fascinating because w- were you able, so then, you know, I, I'm assuming it was IFS and then, you know, w- you started working with psychedelics. Yes. And I'm <laughs> curious how, cause I, I know I, I, I have an IFS therapist and and she does psychedelic integrative work. How did you? How did how was how was that for you to veer to, towards that? Especially for someone who I know has spoken out before about being adverse to any type of drug because of your childhood. Exactly. Not well, and not only just because of my childhood. I mean, like I said, in my environment, growing up in poverty or in the quote unquote hood. Um, you see a lot of people impacted by incarceration in the police systems. Um, and so I was terrified of law enforcement. I was terrified of doing anything wrong. Mm. I mean, I, I was really one of those people who went out of my way. <laughs> people laugh at me still. They're like, you're so naive. I go out of my <laughs> way to follow all the rules and traffic, you know, using my turning signal, make sure I'm stopping at the stoplight. I think it has to do a little bit with my upbringing, but also being in the military, you're just so programmed to obey authority, really conditioned through that lens of fear. So um, I was terrified to get anything wrong as far as law enforcement, which would end up end up in me losing my career in the in the Air Force that I worked really hard to have. So coming out of the military, no, I hadn't experienced any drugs. I was actually even averse to alcohol. I always tell people alcohol is the drug that I fear the most. Because mm-hmm. I've seen it have the most impact on families, society, and communities. So alcohol was one that I really stayed away from. I was just afraid of addiction as well. I was afraid of ending up like my mother, quote unquote. Um, and and her mother and my uh, grandfather had died from alcoholism. So addiction is something that ran very heavy in my family. And I was just terrified. So I'd, I never experimented with anything. And coming out of the military... Another life transition that I had was my health because I didn't have a thyroid. Uh, My thyroid, my complete thyroid was removed in 2016. And so that really changed, you know, my ability to to perform um, and function as as a in my physical abilities. Mm. So, you know, I had a lot of fatigue. I had a hard time really getting out of the bed in the morning. Um, um, I wanted to sleep like. All the time, I would sleep 15 hours and wake up tired. I never felt rested. I did a sleep study, and they showed that my brain wasn't turning off. Even though my eyes were closed, my brain was still pretty much active. 
So there was, you know, I had to figure out like, how do I get my, how do I learn how to calm my body down now that my hormones are all over the place? Um, and as a woman, that's another thing we don't talk about. You know, we don't talk about our hormonal changes as mm. we, you know, as we grow yeah. older. And even every week we have hormonal changes. <laughs> so yes. if you don't have, your body's not able to filter those, it's, it could be really difficult. So for me, I had a lot of interesting body body changes around the age of 36, and I needed to try to learn how to be in this new this new body, if you will. Um, and so I went to IFS training um, in Jan- the day that I retired from the military officially in 2018. And uh, we have a day called Firefighter Day where you're supposed to explore what um, what are your coping mechanisms when you feel overwhelmed emotionally. Do you shop? Do you eat? You know, what, do, what is it that you do? And I noticed that I quickly noticed that eating was pretty much has always been my go to coping mechanism. In my family, that's that's pretty consistent. There's a lot of um, diabetes in my family, um, a lot of high blood pressure. I was actually diagnosed with pre-diabetes when I was 36, um, and that's actually most of my family. They're diagnosed at before the age of 30, so that's something that I was also very worried about. Um, and so I got more aware of that part of me that likes to eat um, when I'm in emotional distress or uh, I'm emotionally uncomfortable. And I remember being at dinner that night and trying not to do that, you know, because I had learned that I have this part that does this. And it's it's an automatic part. These are parts of our personality that learn to do what they could do to keep us, you know, functioning in chaos and trauma and drama. And so I was trying not to do this thing I've been doing my whole entire life. And it that became overwhelming. And I, you know, the urge was even stronger. And I remember one of my uh, girlfriends who I'm still friends with today. Uh, she said, oh, come in here with us. There was like a bunch of ladies laughing and and it seemed like a slumber party, an older version of a slumber party. <laughs> Everyone had gray hair <laughs> and they were just having such a good time. And I was like, what are y'all in here doing? And they were smoking pot. <laughs> <laughs> and a part of me was like, oh my goodness, this is bad. This is wrong. You can't be a part of this. You can't even be here. Because that was the programming that I had operated from for most of my life. Um, And then we started talking about cannabis-assisted therapy, which one of the therapists was um, certified in and how it went really well with IFS. And so they had to teach me how to inhale. (laughs) (laughs) True story. They're going to listen to to this and be like, yeah, we remember that. Uh I really didn't understand what inhale. You're like, what does this mean? I had never, you know, never done this before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I almost immediately realized when they were explaining like cannabis assisted therapy and how it helps you relax and be more in your body Mm -hmm. and more present with your body. I was like, oh, my goodness. I didn't even know I wasn't present with my body. I didn't even know I was so completely detached from my body. Right. And so this was like an avenue for me to explore. How do I get my body to relax? And when it's not relaxed, why not? You know, can I... Then I can pay attention to what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking by going into the body. So I feel like all of the talk therapies are great, you know, for helping us function, but they're not great for really getting to the the cellular level of our trauma. Um, and the founder of IFS, Dick Shorts, has been heavily an advocate for uh, psychedelics. So it was kind of like cannabis was a gateway, as they say, mm-hmm. um, for me to discover psychedelics and that, that healing um, because I was terrified, of course, you know, for about two years, I had to read how to change your mind very slowly and digest it without yeah. questioning everything 
that was said in the book and without, you know, being terrified of losing my mind because my mother struggles with psychosis. So my my fear was that I was going to eat a mushroom and, and go into some psychotic state that I could never come back from. Yeah. Yeah, so that is a fear. Those, that is a fear. Right. When you And I tell people we have to normalize and validate that, you know, that that is a real thing to pay attention to and to be mindful of that. That fear is real. That's to say that, that, that that's a realistic outcome. But the fear for you is real. Um, and you want to acknowledge all of your fears. Those are the parts that are carrying fears from our childhood. And so I believe that, you know, there's that fear has always been there. Always been, oh, if you do this, you might end up like your mother, you know. And so... Um, yeah, my first experience was through mushrooms and, um, I chose that route very intentionally because I, I trusted plants more than anything else, Mm -hmm. uh, with the fentanyl crisis and opioid crisis that I actually was a part of, you know, part of healing and treating in the military. I really wanted to be mindful of not, you know, introducing chemicals that I didn't, I wasn't aware of or informed about. Right. So I trusted plants. I said, oh, you know, I can see that that came from the ground. Um, started off with that. Uh, went, that went really well and helped me a lot in my healing journey, both in therapy and just understanding my body. And then I wanted to go into something deeper that would help me explore more of my body. But I was terrified of any chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started working as a consultant with Field Trip. Yep. Field Trip does ketamine-assisted therapy. So they invited me down to the Atlanta Clinic to experience ketamine-assisted therapy in a group format, um, and I fell in love with ketamine. <laughs> I swore <laughs> I wouldn't. I swore it would, would never be anything that I would, you know, enjoy or endorse. Um, but I fell in love with ketamine, which was eye-opening. Um, I realized that most surgeries use ketamine, mm-hmm. and it was a very familiar feeling for me. And I, I was able to pinpoint it right back to when I had my wisdom teeth removed in the military. I believe they used ketamine for wisdom teeth removals. So it was a very similar feeling when I when I started to feel it. I knew it. It felt familiar. Um, but it also just really helped me see um, the childhood trauma behind, you know, why, my, why I was so attached, detached from my body and what it felt like to be fully embodied while processing my trauma. So that was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kept going because it's like, well, you know, now we've had so much positive experience and success in this healing journey with psychedelics. We might as well keep going down the road. And I've now gotten trained in MDMA therapy. And now that one has quickly become my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I get my favorite. I'm hoping this is my last favorite, but... Uh, I feel There's like so in- much more out there. Oh my goodness, <laughs> there is <laughs> so uncertainty. Much- you know, there's a lot of vulnerability when we talk about not knowing or, uh, you know, just uncertainty and emotional risk, like putting yourself out there and not knowing what you're going to feel or what you're going to experience. So I will say that psychedelic assisted therapy can be very vulnerable. It can bring out, you know, the vulnerable parts of you, which is a good thing mm-hmm. because we want to embrace those parts that we may have locked away long, long time ago. You know, as a little kid, we maybe couldn't be vulnerable or we were taught not to be vulnerable. And vulnerability, right. is, it's always there. Uncertainty in life is always going to be there. And the the better we're able to embrace that um, and be with those parts of us, the better we're able to live a successful life, in my opinion. I agree. And, you know, for, for Black Therapists Rock, you know, I'm, I'm curious, are you helping steer more people of color to be 
psychedelic integrative therapists or work with this type of therapy? Absolutely. It was interesting. This is a ironic uh, moment when I was coming out of my first ketamine journey, or maybe it was the second or third, because um, I did like four sessions over a week. And um, I might, maybe it was the second or third, I came into an article where I was given an award for introducing more therapists of color to psychedelics, um, which has proven to be probably the most challenging part about my work, to be honest, because I was like, you know, everybody should want this. This this is the most amazing healing I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the people that look like me are terrified of losing their license or going to jail. Yeah. And um, I find it also ironic that most of the people who I know that have kind of uh, been easier to embrace psychedelics have been men. Um, a lot of men are like, yeah, let's do it. Why not? <laughs> a lot of white men. <laughs> well, even even men of color, they're really? more likely, I think they're more likely to experience this medicine and benefit from it than to go to talk therapy and mm, you know, yeah. talk their way into healing. It's like... If if they have to choose between, you know, the lesser of two evils, it's probably going to be the drugs. <laughs> um, now, it, I'm not saying that it's an easy decision for them. A lot of a lot of especially black men that I know, I think it's still a very, very difficult um, and desperate decision that they make. It's, it's usually a last chance resort kind of thing. Like this is I've tried everything. Right. And there's still something that I need to get to. There's this part of me that feels so far away that I cannot access and they are willing to do this versus go to years of talk therapy. Right. Wow. I mean, that's how it was for me. I went to years of talk therapy and, and you know, IFS and, and psychedelic therapy really cracked everything open. And that really changed everything for me. Um, and, you know... What many people don't know is that, you know, I'm working with you um, to put together this this documentary on psychedelic assisted healing. Um, and, you know, I was in New York back in August and I interviewed um, this black man who is um, he he's with TAM integration. And it was really interesting because we were in New York. Obviously, there's sirens all the time. So it was him and then an, an, a white man I was in, interviewing together. Um, and the, the black man heard the, the sirens and was like, oh, I hate the sound of sirens. And then the, the, the white, um, man said, oh, I love the sound of the sirens. I I feel like it's our helpers coming to get, to help, help people. And it was just really interesting. They were talking about, he's like, oh, I know the difference between a police siren and a ambulance siren and this siren. And and the black man was saying, I have no idea. They're all, they all sound the same to me. And I don't like any of the sounds. And it was really interesting because I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, that is a real threat for someone who is a person of color who does this work in the psychedelic world. And that's a legitimate fear for them. And it never really goes away. I don't think like for me, I still have that fear. Mm. Um, I, you know, as a black woman who has a small child, I'm thinking, you know, if I go to jail for, you know, <laughs> ingesting something that someone thinks I shouldn't, what's going to happen to my child? You know, mm. Am I going to be able to afford a lawyer? Um, these aren't questions that a lot of people that don't look like us, they're not faced with that because it, it doesn't happen to them so often. Right. For us, it happens every day. We see people that look like us get shot. 
go to jail, and lose their whole entire lives every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you are finding it difficult to push people of color towards this type of type of therapy because I do find it to be more effective than any other therapy and I feel like these are communities that probably needed more who've dealt with you know adverse childhood experiences yes absolutely I, I, I think that was what informed my decision to go with ketamine first and to work with field trip health because it's legal and because it's already used in the medical setting, like I said, 90% of all surgeries use ketamine somewhere around that that estimate. Um, and so, you know, if it's already legal and sanctioned and not seen as bad, then maybe that's a route that we could go. So we actually got 20 therapists trained in psychedelic-assisted therapy last mm. December through FieldTrip. And we've had uh, several other therapists come along since then uh, who are now working at FieldTrip, who are able to see this every day. Um, and learn to trust it slowly. It's a trust process is what I tell people. Learning to trust yourself, relearning to trust yourself because you've been taught not to, but learning to trust nature and, you know, trust a process and trust other people in community. And I think that that comes with shame resilience, like feeling ashamed. I sometimes feel ashamed of being at the forefront of this movement, you know, because it feels like sometimes a very lonely space to be one of the only few black women talking about drugs, you know, very loudly and very publicly. It's not um, easy to be a trailblazer. <laughs> it is not. And I've learned that, you know, if you want to, there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So I've learned to tap in with other black women who are doing this work, like Hanifa, like Candace Oglesby, um, Sarah Reed. There's so many pioneers that came before me and that are still in it with me. That I'm really, really grateful for to to say that. So I don't have to gaslight myself and tell myself, you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that resilience, being able to say, no, I'm not crazy. This works and it's really powerful and it's an important thing to be a part of. Um, It's something that I really learned from working with Brene Brown because she says shame is always going to be there. Mm. Uh, Shame is always going to be there. It's always going to be a part of our lives and our stories. But what do we say back to it? Do we let it rule our lives or do we continue to operate from those places? Or are we able to sit with that discomfort and feel the fear and be courageous despite of all of that? Mm, Wow. What about accessibility for, for people who need psychedelics? I mean, it is really difficult for um, what I found for, for a lot of people, um, to actually access, I mean, I know a lot of it is illegal. A lot of some of you know, a lot of it's decriminalized. But for someone to say, I, you know, I want to do this legally, and I want, you know, to do ketamine. Mm-hmm. What is the ex- accessibility like? I, from what I understand, it's not cheap to do. There, there are some. There's typically not cheap. The medicine itself is cheap, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't cost a lot, but the services, right? Healthcare services are not cheap, um, and they're not accepting insurance right now because our political system doesn't endorse it yet. Um, and so there's a lot of advocacy at that level, which is what I do as well. I, you know, advocate at the political level to ensure that we have more accessibility through insurance and that everyone has equ- equitable accessibility, um, not just based on how much money you have and how much you can pay out of pocket. 
but the the desires and the need actually the people who need it have access to it um and so i think that's that's one of the areas where i've been working really diligently but also like you said some of them are illegal some of them aren't and i think that's another thing that really needs to be talked about and advocated for because I honestly now, now that I'm educated, well educated on the topic, I don't believe anybody should go to jail for drugs. No, no, like it makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, my son and I talk about it. You know, I, I want to make sure that his brain is still conditioned, you know, conditioned to see things as they are, so that he had doesn't have so much to unlearn. And we talk about mushrooms out in nature. And so, can you believe that people can go to jail for this? And he, we think it's it's insane, you know, and so. Going back to the war on drugs and and really acknowledging what that purpose was and what the intention behind that was, it wasn't to to it wasn't about crime or safety. It was about control. Mm-hmm. It was about controlling a narrative uh, and condemning certain populations, poor people, people of people of color, and and getting a fast track into incarceration. The incarceral system has really benefited from the war on drugs. Um, and so I think it's important to talk about those things that the, the legacy burdens is what we call those in IFS, the things that have prevented people from accessing. Um, and so much evidence shows that there's a lot of privilege involved in who can access these medicines, legal or not. Um, especially when they're not legal, there's a lot of evidence and statistics that suggest white people have no problem accessing them, designer drugs Mm -hmm. and things that are, you know, considered underground, and so I've had to realize that just like I think with Martin Luther King, he decided at some point, Dr. King decided that, you know, if we're going to get anywhere, we got to go together, which is back to the African proverb that I said. And I realized that in no one black person or no 200 black people could really make change alone. We really have to work in community with folks who have access to these resources, who have the privilege and who want to empower other communities to have equitable access as well. So that's what I've been doing. I've been working with doctors and healthcare providers who believe in these medicines, who have access to these medicines in a safe way that we, you know, we don't have to worry about something being mixed up with something else. Um, it's always about, for me, trusting the people that I do this stuff, this this work with, I'm really, really trusting them that they have the best intentions for myself and my community. Um, which has been a journey, you know, that alone has taken medicine for me to, to be honest, trust people of power and trust people who have privilege because I've, my life has been harmed a lot by the privilege that they hold. So being able to transform those privileges into, and to give power back to marginalized people has felt just really liberating for me. And, uh, because of that, like I do a lot of retreats, psychedelic retreats, where people of color can come and and trust the safe environment that we've created together. So it's, it's, I would say often typically in this country, the more privilege you have, the more access you have to all medicines, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that racism has really done a number to, uh, to marginalize the health of people who have, you know, who have experienced systemic oppression and that those very same medicines and healing modalities are the very things that are needed, the agents that's going to help us transform that pain into power. Wow. Yes, absolutely. The work you're doing is transformative. Um, I'm a huge fan and I, I really love what you're doing and and how you're helping other people access 
this type of therapy, um, especially people of color, because, you know, what we've seen in the last just five years has been has been traumatic. And I think that, you know, when we're able to heal ourselves and, and, and you know, there are many ways to heal, but I heal. But I feel like I, I know that psychedelics has been extremely effective for me and for people who I know. Um, and, and especially IFS. So I love that you are creating space like Black Therapists Rock for um, more people of color to to be in this space because people who are seeking help, especially people of color, don't want to see another white person. They want to see someone that looks like them. Well, they want to be with a human that gets them. I I think that's Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was in the military. I worked primarily with men of all races and all backgrounds. And I think the key is just to be a human that gets them, you know, Mm -hmm. that wants to get them, that wants to understand. And when it comes to these body-centered, these body-centered traumas, such as racial trauma, sexual trauma, or intergenerational trauma, these are things that you can't, you just can't talk your way through. You know, it's in your body. You don't know why. You don't know the words. And sometimes by me just acknowledging that it's there, that yes, you have racial trauma. Yes, sexual trauma is real. Intergenerational trauma is real. People just having that education is like, oh, wow, you get me. You understand my story. You understand my life. And if you've been invisible for most of your life, that can be really profound. Mm. Um, you're right. I know because I know that that's important for me too. Um, is there anything that you would like, anything else that you would like to add? I would just say that, you know, we remain open to support. A lot of folks think that Black Therapist Rock is about segregating ourselves and, you know, having um, the separatist ideas of, you know, for us to heal, we have to be completely separate from the predominant um, society. I don't think that's true. We we heal in community with everyone, I think. And we have corrective experiences with people who represent folks that previously harmed us. So I encourage people to support us in this work that we're doing by going to our website, www.blacktherapistrock.com. We have a BIPOC membership and we also have an allied membership now because we really want allies to come on board and learn how to be with people of all backgrounds. I think that's the most important thing is that if you call yourself a healer or someone who's, you know, really invested in the healing of the world, then that should be for everyone. So I just, I want to extend the invitation for folks to join us in this work and to support this work as much as possible. Well, thank you so much. And I will also include those links in the show notes. Um, Duran, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I'm extremely honored to to have you on. So thank you so much. Yeah, so glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. That was Duran Young, internal family systems therapist, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. She's a psychedelic therapist at Field Trip Health and founder of Black Therapist Rock. For more info on Duran, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen, and that will send you to her book to purchase. Also, January's issue of Authentic Insider is out, and you can find that at traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. So I want to thank everybody for joining me today. 
We will be back January 18th with David Crow of the award-winning memoir, The Pale-Faced Lie. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Again, thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care.